Hello, and welcome back to Wandering the Edge, a podcast traversing Ukrainian history with a side trip through Ukrainian travel. Come take a journey with me, your host Larissa, through time, and also please mind my swearing. Uh, so before we begin today's episode, I want to thank my friend Nestor for creating my intro music for this podcast. It's a nice blend of folky Ukrainian and nature sounds, and he did it because I'm his friend, which is even better. So thank you, Nestor. So after the premiere episode, it honestly took me a few days to think about what this episode was going to be about. Like it's a history podcast, you can sort of go anywhere at any time and talk about anyone. So that gives you a lot of leeway to explore and there's thousands of fascinating topics throughout Ukrainian history. But I wanted to pick something that would help elevate this episode a bit too. Uh, and so after thinking about it and talking to some friends, I decided this episode will be about the Ukrainian language. I know it sounds really dull, but it's not. Trust me. The reasoning behind this is that in the future, if I'm using any old Slavic um, sources, they will be mostly in old church Slavonic. And that's like using old English. It's old and at times unrecognizable from today's language. And so I will be using the Ukrainian variants of this church or old Slavonic and translating it in that way which will also explain how some of the names are pronounced, and I will explain this further on a bit too. But let's begin with the travel part of this episode, shall we? So I lived in Kiev, the capital of Ukraine, twice. Uh, once in around 2007-ish and again in 2015, but I went back there multiple times and saw the capital just change itself drastically between that decade. While I was visiting the capital in, I think this was 2008, uh, I went with one of my best friends, Petrushka. We were gallivanting around the city one cold day in December, and so because it was so freaking cold there, we decided to enter the National Museum of Tarashevchenko, located on 12 Tarashevchenko Boulevard. Now, this Shevchenko shouldn't be confused with the modern-day footballer and coach of the Ukrainian football team, Andriy Shevchenko. Two different and completely separate people. Um, Taras uh, was basically the founder of Ukrainian Romanticism, and some might even call him the founder of Ukrainian nationalism in the 19th century. Born in 1814 to serfdom and orphaned at a young age, he became a talented painter and renowned poet. He is a very big deal for Ukrainians, and I will probably discuss him several times in the future. Anyway, we are in this museum, which is a fucking palace. Like, it literally sits on, like, a whole city block in downtown Cave. It was bought, the building, in 1875 by Mykola Tereshenko, who was a sugar magnet and a philanthropist who liked also collecting and showing off his art. Now, Mykola redesigned this gigantic house in a Renaissance design, and luckily, its modern facade has been upheld fairly well. After the 1917 revolution, the Tereshenko family emigrated, probably forcibly, 
abroad. And so the building <clears throat> fell into the state's hands. The actual museum didn't open up until 1940, uh, 1949. Fun fact, though, the museum is currently available to view virtually on the museum portal's website. I also managed to get myself lost while viewing it virtually, so there's that. And if someone out there is planning a trip to Ukraine, know that their museums charge pittance for entry. I mean, like a dollar or less for some of them. So it's a great and cheap way to soak up some fascinating history. Anyway, the museum is filled with the works, furniture, and inspirations by and of Tarashevchenko. Now, Chevy, as I like to call him, uh, wrote passionately in Ukrainian about Ukraine and about the freedom of Ukrainians from the, uh, from the Russian Tsarists. And so one would think that the people who work there in the capital of Ukraine would, you know, talk to you in Ukrainian, but no. The first time I was there, me and Petrushka were shocked when these little old ladies and these stories will likely have a lot of these little old ladies in them. They're everywhere and they're scarier than the security guards in many places. Uh, so one or a couple of them came up to us and started reprimanding us about something. Uh, anyway, I don't remember what it was, but I remember her speaking to me in Russian. And neither me nor Petrushka understand a word of what she said. Like, nothing. Well, guess what it was what was at the exit of this museum? A guest book. And guess what these two did in that guest book? We wrote something along the lines of you should be ashamed to speak to guests in the Tarashevchenko Museum in Russian. Know your history. Now, I don't want to take any credit or anything, but the next time I was at that museum, like seven years later, they were all speaking in Ukraine. Just saying. It's also not the only Shevchenko Museum in Kiev. There is also the Taras Shevchenko Literary and Memorial House located at 8A Shevchenko Lane. It's one of the little streets leading off the center of the city or the Maidan Zlezhnyst. Anyway, I actually never got a chance to visit there since it is, was somewhat hidden, uh, but it's the actual house that Shevchenko lived in from 1846 to 1847. There is even a mulberry tree in the yard that's from Shevchenko's time. There's also the Shevchenko statue, located in Shevchenko Park, located in the Shevchenko district of Kiev, located right across the street from Tras Shevchenko University. So basically, Shevchenko is a big deal, not only in Kiev, but in Ukraine, and for Ukrainians, because his words stroked that national consciousness that all Ukrainians feel. And this is why language is important, people. As the title of this episode, It's Alive, language, I mean, suggests, languages are not static. They evolve, get influenced by others, and are basically alive in their own right. That's why talking about the history of a language is ridiculously difficult. Where do you start at? At what point do we talk about the beginning of a language that has migrated and changed throughout the centuries? The modern Ukrainian language's evolution starts, and I'm not even sure if that's the right word for it, but that's what we're going with. Uh, anyways, it starts where the other European languages begin. 
the Indo-European migration from 4000 to 1000 BCE. Now, I like to imagine the evolution of languages sort of like a genealogical tree with its roots spreading out all over. Once that initial migration began, some parts were left behind, others were incorporated with other languages, and then those also began reincorporating themselves all over again. And so you have this gradual procession to the old Slavic languages, which then branch out to the modern Slavic languages, which are all sort of familiar with each other. But then you have influences upon variants of those broad languages, which are called dialects. Now, some Slavic languages are more closely aligned together than others. In a 2015 article entitled Genetic Heritage of the Balto-Slavic-Speaking Populations, a synthesis of autosomal, mitochondrial, and Y-chromosomal data, authored by a lot of very smart people who I think followed the genetic clues to find out how the Baltic Balto-Slavic language evolved, indicated that the Russian language diverged from Ukrainian and Belarusian in the 6th century. And this isn't really that big of a shock since Russian had a far more varied influences than Ukrainian or, Ru or Belarusian, the Finnish in the north and the Mongolian from the east specifically. So when St. Cyril and Methodius, two brothers and Byzantine Christian theologians, began their missions in Eastern Europe in the 9th century, they brought with them a Greek influence, the Cyrillic alphabet. And with the introduction of a new alphabet, there was a standardization of the Old Slavic language, which eventually turned into the Old Church Slavonic, which is actually still used by some churches in Eastern Europe for their divine liturgy. But to the crux of the argument that I am making here, the reason I will not be Russianizing any old Slavic names is that because that old Slavic is more closely aligned with modern Ukrainian than it is in, with Russian. I found this great quote within a quote, sort of, uh, in Andrew Wilson's work, The Ukrainians, Unexpected Nation, which is a horrible title, but whatever. Now, Wilson quotes Ivan Yushchuk. A modern Ukrainian languages professor, head of the Department of uh, Slav Slavonic Philology and General Linguistics at the Kiev International University, and a leading member of the Prozvita Ukrainian Language Society. And I quote, The Russian language as such began to form on the territory of modern Russian from the 11th century onwards, as a result of the late colonization of these lands by the Kiev and Rus. Rus boyards or nobility, ruling over local Finno-Ugric tribes, the Chud, Meria, Ves, Muroma, uh, Mordva, Perm, Pechora, and so on, brought their own mixture of Church Slavonic and Rus, just as, for example, also happened with the formation of the English and French languages, that is, as a result of the mixing of the language of the conquerors with local dialects. In Cave and Rus, the dominant language until the adoption of Christianity was the Rus language, which, as many facts demonstrate, sounded closer to the modern Ukrainian language and already possessed the majority of its grammatical and phonetic characteristics, end quote. Now, there's debate on when this divergence happened, some say 19th, 9th century, while 
uh, others say 13th or even 14th. My main point is that if you look at the old Slavic and Ukrainian, they are more similar in sound than to the Russian. For example, let's look at two very popular names in Old Slavic and modern Ukrainian and Russian, Oyha and Voldemir. In Old Church Slavonic, Oyha is written in the exact same way in modern Ukrainian as it was back then, and pronounced Oyha. In Russian, it's spelled the same, but pronounced with that stupid G sound, Olga. That's because Russian doesn't have that soft H sound. Voldemir, as in St. Voldemir the Great of Kiev and Rus is another example. In the original Old Church Slavonic manuscripts, he is Volodymyr, while in Russian he is Vladimir, and in Ukrainian, Volodymyr. If you can't hear the difference, then I don't know what to tell you. Anyways, eventually, with the establishment of other empires and the fall of the cave in Rus, the Ukrainian language of old gradually became a sort of peasant language, because the nobility of Russia use their own dialect, grammar, enunciations, and influences. It would take until Tarashevchenko to popularize even the written Ukrainian word. He wasn't the first to use it, but he was the first to become like a rock star of the Ukrainian literary scene. Why? Well, it's because the Ukrainian language was frowned upon as inferior and not even a language within itself. Unfortunately, this inferiority complex is still alive and well among the Russian speakers, even in Ukraine itself. The amount of time people refuse to switch from Russian to Ukrainian when I asked while in Kiev is staggering. And no, they fucking knew Ukrainian. Like, they just didn't want to use it because they think it's not as metropolitan as Russian, to which I say, fuck you. Uh, anyway, Ukrainian was belittled, belittled into an inferior language throughout much of the second half of the 19th and 20th centuries in almost all of those empires that Ukrainians found themselves in. Some of these decrees, orders, and laws made somewhat sense, like the introduction of the Polish language in the courts of that part of Ukraine that was under the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth in the late 17th century. Others were just a direct suppression of the Ukrainian language. This suppression began to be codified in law by the Russian Orthodox Church. This was a reaction by the Moscow clergy, primarily against the religious intellectual work that was coming out of Kiev during the 17th century, which was under the influence of Petro Mohila, a noble who became the metropolitan or head of the Kiev Halic and Alrus Church in 1633. He also founded one of Ukraine's greatest universities, the National University of Kiev Mohila Academy. He was so frightening to the uh, Moscow clergy because he believed that all Ukrainians should be literate, established a series of schools across Ukraine, and began uh, publishing Ukrainian language books. And as most readers of history know, knowledge and literacy are very powerful tools. This fear of a language began to be politically and legislatively codified in the 18th century in Russia. Peter the Great began to ban printing presses in Ukrainian, while Catherine the Great, look, if they're great in Russia, they're usually not great for Ukraine. And she banned teaching in Ukrainian in the Cave Mohila Academy. She also destroyed the Zaporizhzhia siege, the Kozak stronghold in Ukraine, and closed Ukrainian schools. While in the other half of Ukraine, controlled by the Polish kingdom, 
all Ukrainian schools were closed in 1789. This law was repeated in 1804 in the Russian Empire. The Austro-Hungarian Empire tried to replace the Cyrillic language, uh, alphabet with Latin, but, well, the Austro-Hungarian Empire tried to be, like, strength incarnate, and then they usually ended up going meh about a lot of things. The 19th century, however, would also impose some of the harshest measures against the use of Ukrainian in the Russian Empire. The first of these harsh measures was called the Vyuev Circular from 1863, and this was a reaction to the Ukrainian translation of the Old Testament that was rejected by the Holy Synod of the Russian Orthodox Church. The Minister of the Interior, Count Ether Vyuev, issued this circular to the Office of Censorship. Um, I'm using the translation of this from Paul Magoshi's A History of Ukraine. Uh, and a reminder from the last episode, Russians really like to refer to Ukrainians as little Russians. Uh, so this is from the preamble of the secret circular. Quote, Previous works written in the little Russian language were intended solely for the educated classes of South Russia. Now, however... The supporters of a little Russian nationality have turned their attention to the uneducated masses, their supporters with who hope to have their political ideas implemented have undertaken the publication of books for basic reading, primers, grammars, geography texts, etc., under the pretext of spreading literacy and enlightenment. Like, how dare those Ukrainians want to actually read and write in their own language, right? Further, uh, a little... Russian language has not, does not, and cannot exist, and that its dialects, as spoken by the masses, are the same as the Russian language, with the exception of some corruptions from Poland. In other words, the common Russian language is fully understandable to little Russians as to great Russians and is even more understandable than the so-called Ukrainian language that has been created for them by a few little Russians, and especially by Poles, end quote. First off, what the hell? Also, you argue Russian and Ukrainian is the same language because Ukrainians can understand Russian. So in that sense, shouldn't Russians understand Ukrainian? No. No, they cannot. Which reminds me of a story from my time in Kiev, well, I wanted to buy some damn roses from this merchant that was selling them in the underground passages. I thought she was done. Uh, well, I thought this guy was done uh, trying to buy them since he basically ignored the merchant lady. And so I asked her in Ukraine, you know, how much for a bunch of these roses? And she started answering me. Well, this asshat turns to her and says in Russian, what pig language is she speaking? This lady was so shocked that uh, she replied, Ukrainian, stupid. So if they are brother languages, as those Russophiles like to say, shouldn't they then understand when we speak in Ukrainian? But back to the circular. Basically, any Ukrainian religious or pedagogical or educational books were forbidden. But why was there even a need to issue this circular? Well, it all started with those Ukrainian intellectuals again. 
Firstly, it was around this time that Ukrainian and Russian were beginning to be codified into a standard language. The Valuev Circular was an attempt to hamper this development of the Ukrainian language. It was also around this time that the Ukrainian intelligentsia began to be taken seriously. Writers like Hrhori Kvitka Ostovnienko, founder, uh, the founder of Ukrainian classicist Hose, and Taras Shevchenko, the important one from earlier, uh, proved to the world that Ukrainian literature is comparable to any other. Gogol, or Hohol in Ukrainian, was also of that time. Importantly, these Ukrainian intellectuals began publishing journals, and as Michael Moser explains in his article Osnova and the Origins of the Valuev Directive, I quote, the year 1861 marked another breakthrough of immense significance. Beginning in January of that year, the protagonists of the Ukrainian national movement published a Ukrainian journal titled Osnova, or The Foundation. Not only did the 21 issues and several thousand pages of this thick journal significantly contribute to the formation of a distinct Little Russian consciousness and a heightened awareness of uh, Ukrainian national ambitions, they also proved to an ever-increasing extent that the Ukrainian language could be successfully used for intellectual articles and political other news or other news of the day, despite the fact that most non-belletristic materials were written in Russian, end quote. Bell's Letras is, by the way, a form of literary writing that doesn't fall into ma any major category and were allowed um, to be published under the Valuev order. Now, Osnova contained articles on the life and customs of Ukrainians, but after the termination of the Brotherhood of St. Cyril and Methodius, a secret literary Ukrainian organization, Shevchenko's eventual arrest, again, which we'll look at in another episode, and the exile or imprisonment of many Ukrainian intellectuals, the journal ceased to exist only after one year. Now, this period, time period in Ukrainian history is super important and also super fascinating, and I'm not going to give it the time it deserves as I sort of rush through it here. So I'll probably come back to it in another episode, but I did want to mention one man, uh, Mikola Kostomarov. Now, he's also venerated as a Russian historian and is known as Nikolai Kostomarov in Russian. He also has a big influence upon Ukrainian literary and historical study. He's also super fascinating. His father was a Russian noble landlord, while his mother was one of his father's Ukrainian serfs, or slaves. Uh, his writings distinguished Ukrainians from Russians in a historical sense, but his writing was also very inflammatory to the Russian nobility. This, for example, is an excerpt from his two Russian nationalities, originally published in 1860 and republished in English by Ralph Lindenheim and George Lutsky in Towards an Intellectual History of Ukraine, an anthology of Ukrainian thought from 1710 to 1995. And this quote is just one paragraph of Kostomarov's work, mind you. Quote, the great Russians developed an intolerance of other faiths, a disdain of other nationalities, a very high opinion of themselves. All the foreigners who visited in Muscovy in the 15th, 16th, and 17th centuries were unanimous in saying that the Muscovites looked down on other faiths and nationalities. 
even the Tsars, who in these matters were marginally better than the masses, washed their hands after having touched foreign ambassadors of the various Christian faiths. The Russians disdained the Germans, who were allowed to live in Moscow, and the clergy cried out against dealing with them. Patriarch, who in an unguarded moment had given them his blessing, later demanded that they thereafter be distinguished by their external appearance, so that it could not happen again. The great Russians, regarding the Latins, Lutherans, Armenians, and members of all other faiths which differed from orthodoxy as cursed. The Boscovites thought of themselves as the single chosen people and were ill-disposed towards other peoples of the same faith, such as the Greeks and the Little Russians. Everything which did not accord with their nationality was subjected to their disdain and considered heretical. They haughtily looked down on everyone. End quote. And later on, he continues, The South Russian group had in its specific character a preponderance for personal liberty, while the Great Russians had a preponderance of communality and elsewhere. The great Russians are deficient in imagination. They have very super they have very few superstitions, but many prejudices. In a letter to the editor of uh, Kolokol, a Russian weekly newspaper published in uh, London and Geneva, regarding an article they negatively wrote expressing a view on Ukraine, Kostomorov wrote the following in 1860. I quote the majority of the great Russian and Polish public are not accustomed to regard us, i.e. the Ukrainians, as a separate people, to acknowledge in us those elements of a distinctive life which were cultivated in the past. They are accustomed to doubt the existence of our distinct language and the possibility of its literary development, and in general, posit our characteristics as one of the provincial nuances of Russian or Polish nationality, end quote. And he ends this letter with the following. Let neither the great Russians nor the Poles call their own the land inhabited by our people. End quote. His articles were featured in Osnova. He helped found the Brotherhood of St. Cyril and Methodius, that secret organization from earlier. And he was a strong activist of Ukrainian National Awakening, to the point where he was arrested numerous times and forced to resign from his post as chair of the history department at the University of St. Petersburg. Again, a figure I'll probably come back to in a future episode because, oh my god, he's so fascinating. Uh, anyway, back to the topic at hand. Now, the Vulyev uh, circular was apparently a bit murky, as the wording of it was a bit unclear. As Johannes Remy states in his work Brothers or Enemies, the Ukrainian National Movement in Russia from the 1840s to the 1870s, quote, the circular at first allowed only belles lettres, but then proceeded to specifically ban publications aimed at readers from among the common people. Reading the circular just as it was written, a censor should have prevented publications of all books except belles lettres for the educated public. However, one could arguably also read the circular in a manner that allowed the publication of secular nonfiction for the educated public, because, strictly speaking, the circular said nothing about such work, end quote. And so many Ukrainian writers, such as Mihailo Dromanov, a friend of Shevchenko, and uncle to Lesya Ukrainka, another legendary Ukrainian poetress, 
and he was the leader of the Hamada Secret Society and a Ukrainian historian, economist, and political activist. And Pavlo Chubinsky, poet and ethnographer and writer of the Ukrainian national anthem, Ukraine Has Not Yet Perished, they managed to skirt around this problem. That skirting led to another royal order, the Ems Ukas. In the 1870s, there were several publications in Kiev about Ukrainian topics, but were written in Russian and created by various societies. So societies of various kinds were popular throughout Europe by that, by, at that time, by the way. The authors of those works included Dramahov and uh, Chubinsky. Anyways, another member of one of those societies, the Southwestern Branch of the Imperial Russian Geographical Society, wrote to the Tsar warning him of separatist activity. And so in response, Tsar Alexander II decided to enhance the value of decree, all while being at the spa at Badems, Germany. In 1876, he signed the Ems Ukaz, or the Ems Order, which would ban all books and song lyrics in Ukrainian and even prohibit its import. Public lectures, plays, song performances, and in an amendment to the Ukaz, even the Ukrainian alphabet was prohibited. The instructions to the Ministry of Education went even further. Quote, to increase supervision on the part of the local school authorities so that in the lower level schools, no teaching in any subject is permitted in the Little Russian dialect. To remove from all lower and middle schools, middle level school libraries in the Little Russian provincials, provinces, books and brochures prohibited in the second paragraph of this proposal, i.e. all original and translated works, end quote. Teachers were removed. Organizations and newspapers shut down, while Dramahanov and Chupinsky were directly ordered to be exiled. Uh, Dramahanov was fired from his position at the University of St. Voldemir, now the Sarashevchenko University, and forced to emigrate to France. Chupinsky was moved to the Ar uh, Archangelisk province in the north, then to St. Petersburg, where he died. The Ukrainian language then languished as a village peasant language. The cities became Russified even further, while those who studied or those who had funds to send their children to school and universities were taught in Russian. Now, Pomogochi, in his History of Ukraine, uh, stressed that because the Russian Empire didn't really care that much about literacy of the lower classes, this lack of Ukrainian in schools actually helped protect Ukrainian from Russification. However, if Ukrainian was allowed to be used in any educational or professional capacity, maybe there would have been more Ukrainian intellectuals to lead their people in the 20th century, a time when empires fell and nation states rose. Or maybe they would have more influence on the international stage to gain recognition of Ukraine's independence after the First World War. There are a lot of ifs in this situation. So moving forward in time, the First World War ends, the Russian Empire falls, the first U Ukrainian independence is destroyed, and Ukraine is split between Poland and the Soviet Union. The Ukrainian language at this point is in a really weird position, because under Poland, colonization po uh, policies begin. So Ukrainian schools are closed, cultural centers are targeted by uh, political repression, and the organization of Ukrainian nationalism 
is established and begins their underground work among Ukrainian societies and political groups to subvert Polish rule. But on the other side of the border, it's more of a mixed bag because when the Soviet Union was still sort of taking form, the leadership in Moscow actually allowed Ukrainians more freedom than they were used to. The Ukrainian Bolsheviks began experimenting with Ukrainianization. And in 1927, Mykola Skripnik was appointed the Ukrainian Commissar of Education. Now, this man is a paradox of Ukrainian independentists, communists. Like, I think he believed that while Ukraine can be communist, it should be communist in a very Ukrainian sense. He was also very important in standardizing the Ukrainian alphabet. What we see today is what he sort of created. It's even called the Skripnivka alphabet and was officially published in 1928. The standardization and use of this alphabet literally spread across the globe. It was adapted by, or sorry, it was adopted by Ukrainians not only in Poland, but also in the diaspora that lived in North America, Europe, and South America. It would continue to strive abroad throughout the 20th and 21st century, which is important because in the 1930s, Ukrainianization began to be repealed. Stalin was not a fan of Ukraine and Ukrainians. Not only did Stalin organize a man-made famine in Ukraine in the early 1930s, but in 1933, Skripnik was removed from his position and his policies were condemned as apparently wrecking counter-revolutionary nationalist elements. He shot himself in July of the same year instead of being arrested. His alphabet was also revised and brought closer to Russian. This revision is also why there's such a parody of transliteration today. In 1933, the Ukrainian letter Y was removed from the alphabet. Why is this important? Because this letter didn't appear in the Russian alphabet. But the letter that was before it, the He, remained as it remained in the Russian alphabet. However, although the actual symbol is the same, the pronunciation is different. The symbol in Ukrainian is a soft He while in Russian is it is a hard get. So that's why if your name is, I don't know, Igor in Ukrainian, it is Igor in Russian. And I have gotten into many arguments with Ukrainians on how their names are pronounced in English because what foreign embassies did for decades and decades was transliterate their names via the Russian language. So if you wanted to apply for a Canadian visa, you would take your name, let's say Oleg, and transliterate it to Russian. Now it's Oleg, and that's that's the name that appears on your Canadian visa. While for Ukrainians, it appears to have no difference. Ukrainians have only begun transliterating directly from Ukrainian to English only after the Revolution of Dignity in 2014. Oh, and it was only after the fall of the Soviet Union that the letter Ye was allowed back into the Ukrainian alphabet. Insane, right? So, why is the Ukrainian language today so scandalous? Well, I know this will sound super conspiracy theory, but Russia is still playing their power politics within Ukraine. And the Ukrainian language is being targeted because of this. 
in 2012, the Vyhovna Ukraine's parliament, narrowed the use of the Ukrainian language within, within Ukraine. Viktor Yanukovych was the president at that time, and his clearly pro-Russian way of leading Ukraine caused the revolution of dignity and his eventual removal from power in 2014. So now, instead of using the state language uh, in state schools, so elementary, secondary, university, and above, you can use Russian, or Polish, or Hungarian. And this weakens the very idea of being Ukrainian. Yes, there are Ukrainian patriots who are Russian speakers. My own husband was essentially a Russian speaker when we first met. But he reverted back to Ukrainian when I told him I don't speak Russian and I'm not going to learn how to speak it. And guess what? Within a month, the man was using Ukrainian without any problems. But why is it important to cultivate the Ukrainian language? Well, this is because Russian has so heavily influenced Ukraine that as Andrew Wilson acknowledges in his work that at the fall of the Soviet Union, quote, Ukraine was already a country of two languages and cultures, with the Ukrainian half in retreat. End quote. As a free Ukraine codified their constitution and state language, the use of Ukrainian was slowly beginning to be used in the streets of its cities and towns. This decreased with the 2012 language law, especially in the areas near Hungary, which still sends millions of euros to Hungarian schools in, in Ukraine. I mean, there's a whole lack of other practical problems with this law. Official state documents was, were to be translated into minority languages. Do you know how much money the state has to spend for this? I mean, if I was an auditor, I would just tell them from a financial sense, this law is dumb. However, unfortunately, the Ukrainian language in Ukraine is still considered inferior to Russian. And once people move into the cities, they decrease the use of it. I remember walking down the street with an American friend debating this, and I pointed out that it makes no sense to have Russian as a bilingual state language, because even though 70-something percent of people consider themselves ethnically Ukrainians, almost 100% of Ukrainian citizens speak in Ukrainian today, so it's not impossible for them to use it during their business and political dealings. A random Ukrainian guy walking past stopped, turned around, and said in English, She's right, you know. Also, if you're in a goddamn war with Russia, why are you using Russian? It's not like the English talked amongst, them, amongst themselves in German during the Second World War, so why should Ukrainians be ashamed of using Ukrainian? We aren't less than. We are more than worthy enough of, for our own language. Now, I don't care if you're Jewish, Polish, Russian, Hungarian, Greek, or Kyrgyzian, Tatlan. Nor do I care if you use your native language at home or even in heritage schools like we have here in Canada. I mean, Ukrainian Saturday schools are popular here. But you should know your state language, especially if you were born, raised, and lived there for the majority of your life. Wouldn't it be ridiculous to be an elected official in Canada and not know French or English? Or an elected official in America coming into Congress and, or Senate and standing there speaking Russian from the podium? Oh, and maybe just maybe actually know the words to your national anthem. Sorry, it just pisses me off. Now, I want to end this episode with a quote by Pavlo Movchan, a Ukrainian poet, political figure, and head of the Prozvita Society that I found in Wilson's work, The Ukrainians and Unexpected Nation. I quote, Language is the foundation of any national identity. It's impossible to imagine the French without the French language or the English without the English language. 
It's just as impossible to imagine Ukraine without the Ukrainian language. Ukraine must speak in Ukrainian, end quote. And that's it for today's episode. Uh, please come back next time. And because I mentioned Petrushka in the episode, I also have to give a shout out to Bo because then she'll be mad at me if I if I leave her out. So hi, Bo. And also please visit the website wanderingtheedge.net for source information. And please follow me on Instagram and Facebook at WanderEdgeUkraine for any news and comments and interaction. Happy wanderings, my friends. And until next time. <laughs>